1: with Colwell Banker Residential Brokerage in Sacramento, California. Last year he closed ninety two transactions with a total sales volume of seventeen million. His average sales price was one hundred and eighty four thousand, of which ten per cent were buyers and ninety per cent were sellers. He operates as a sole practitioner with no team members. Mark has been an agent for eight years. He specializes in REO sales. Working with only one bank and three asset managers, Mark was able to standardize his operation and close 92 transactions with no assistance. Mark proves you can have a high volume operation without a huge team. He believes in being full time, hands on, and accountable. Mark worked as an assistant manager at a grocery store. He wanted to invest in real estate and took a real estate licensing course to learn more. While in class, he learned about a non-paid summer internship that the local realtor association was sponsoring. Mark took it. There he learned to be proactive. His mentor required him to make cold calls and set listing appointments. Mark conquered his fear of cold calling and was hooked. Mark worked the first two years as a part-time agent while he continued at the grocery store. Although he saw the potential in real estate, he had a hard time breaking with a consistent paycheck. Finally, he made the jump and the rest is history. Mark believes his success stems from his persistent drive fueled by paranoia. Listen closely as he explains his thought process, his decision to work by himself, and his systems. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, Real Estate Agent Lead Generation Television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Mark. Thank you. Before we get started talking about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you were doing before you got into real estate.
0: Before I got into real estate, I was working in the produce department at a local grocery chain here in the area called Lucky Market, which got bought out by Albertsons. I was assistant manager, but I worked a total of 10 years at the grocery store. I was in produce for probably six of those years. And I loved it. It was great. I worked in a, a small little mom-and-pop against-the-grain store here in Sacramento. Uh, it was in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Steady income and benefits and all of the great qualities of a union job that when I was young were exactly what I wanted. But as I got older and progressed through the company, it was I, I kind of got a little frustrated by it. it was more about when you started And uh, what your seniority was in comparison, not based on your ability or what you knew, and decided to look elsewhere.
1: What skills did you learn from that job environment that have helped you today?
0: Number one, work hard no matter what. Uh, When you work in a grocery store, it's a little mind numbing. There's no end. Everything you do on day one will have to be repeated on day two, and it did uh, a good job of just teaching me to work hard, both physically and then uh, not letting my mind get distracted for something that may feel repetitive, but knowing that you have to do a good job every time. Otherwise, it doesn't look as good as it could. Why did you decide to go into real estate? A couple different reasons. The first one being what I said is I got a little frustrated in how you advance in a union job. It's based more on when your hire date was in comparison to when someone else's hire date is. Uh, That's like 90% of the equation right there. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter how hard you work. and It doesn't matter the sacrifices you're willing to make for the company. All of those actually tend to work against you, it seems, in the grocery business as you get worse hours where they can rely on you more because they know that you'll show up at at midnight or 3 in the morning or 6 in the morning and you're kept in in those positions as a result because no manager wants to work in those positions. Their hours are set. So that was the first thing. But the second thing was a little bit different, actually. I had wanted to use my income as an assistant manager with Albertsons to invest in real estate, but I didn't know anything about it. So I took a class at the City College here in order to better educate myself on how exactly real estate works. And the class itself was probably the most boring, dry experience of my life. The book was no pictures, just nothing but text. And the teacher was not very energetic. All that being said, I loved it. I read that book from beginning to end. And that lit a fire of interest in me in that. And I got into an internship program through that that we had to apply for with the local Sacramento Association of Realtors. And I get got picked up by a, a young agent who, I mean, he's probably not four or five years older than me, and he was a real go-getter. And he worked for Coldwell Banker. And my limited knowledge of real estate, that was perfect for me because I knew the name Coldwell Banker. I respected the brand, the neighborhood that I grew up in in Sacramento. Some of the biggest agents that dominated our area were Coldwell Banker agents. I had a lot of respect for the name. So I got in with him as his assistant, and he taught me the ropes.
1: It was an internship. Did that mean that you had to have your license or not?
0: Did not. I did not. It was was right after I took my first real estate class, which was real estate practice, I think it was. And then, as I was taking additional classes to get my license, I was participating in the internship program. It was a non-paid thing that the agents volunteered to do. And it was great because, I mean, he had me do things that I don't think any of the other agents had their interns do. And I greatly appreciated it because it taught me the hard work required in real estate. He was big on being proactive, not passive. And so... Every day, I would go through the paper. And you have to remember, this is a different time in real estate. This is 2003. So he would have me go through the paper, and I would compile a list of all the for sale by owners. And then I would go through the rentals, and I would compile a list of all the investor-owned properties. And then I would cold call all of them and just introduce myself, and I would set up appointments for him. And then he would go in the afternoon and evening to the scheduled appointments that I set to get himself listings and it worked great i think you have to repeatedly call people gold calling to get over the fear of calling them get over the fear of being told no and being hung up on because that happens a lot and that was great i really appreciate that anyone can tell you how to put a postcard in the mail but i don't think those work quite as well as actually doing something
1: did that help you get over your fear of cold calling
0: oh definitely definitely it, it helped me get over my fear of rejection in just about every aspect of life i mean you're more social when you go out as a result because you just you kinda get numbed to it and realize that it's not a, a personal judgment on you at all. It's just some people are interested and some people are not and there's no way to find out one way or the other unless you ask. That internship,
1: how many hours a week were you working?
0: I don't know what the required hours were for that. I was still at the grocery store at the time and if I wasn't at the grocery store and I had the time I was there. I worked easily or interned definitely five days a week. And I would think that I was probably there from about nine in the morning until one. Or if I worked in the morning at the grocery store, I was probably there from about three in the afternoon until seven, five days a week.
1: This like another part-time job, about 20 hours
0: a week. Yeah, but you don't get paid in the internship.
1: What is the term of the internship? Did you do it for a week, a month, a couple months? How long did it go on for?
0: It went from the end of the spring semester, so sometime in May I think is when it must have started, and it went all the way through to the end of the summer. It was like a summer program. I stayed on with him until I got my license actually doing the same thing.
1: And how long was that from the time that you had finished school? You said that was the beginning of the summer. You interned with him throughout the summer. How long were you with him before you start to do things on your own? About four months,
0: four or five months.
1: Did it turn into a paid position with him or did it continue on as a non-paid internship? Non-paid internship. It was not paid. That's actually a really neat concept. Have you brought in interns since then? Have you taken people in under your wing? I have not.
0: It's more because of the type of business that I'm in now with the REO business. Some of the big increases in my business have been the result of people that utilize teams having team members make mistakes and then me being brought in to take over their accounts. And I have a fear of that happening to me. I know people make mistakes and I mean, it's no fault of the agents, but the consequences so severe right now for us here in, in Sacramento. It's it's such a feast or famine business, and I the thought of losing any of my accounts as a result of that is a pretty strong motivator to continue to do it myself.
1: Once you went out on your own, did you go full time or
0: part time? I went part time for the first couple years, against the advice of several established agents that I had had the opportunity to sit down and talk with once I got my license. And the number one piece of advice that they all gave across the board, various brokerages and different business models, they all said you have to go full-time. And there's no truer advice than that. It's a scary thought. And I didn't go full-time actually until the market here started showing signs of going down the drain, which is probably backwards. But it was at that time I I realized that if I – going to commit myself and make this a career. I need to jump in the pool. And I did. To be where I'm at today in light of the way the market changed and the way that the whole real estate environment is here now is, I think, just is a demonstration of going full-time is a necessary thing to do. And if you fully commit yourself, then success will come.
1: Did you make money from real estate during those first two years of part-time business?
0: barely any my production has always gone up for those first five six years each year it went up but nowhere near the production I made once I went full-time to when I was doing part-time because it's hard to ask someone to take you seriously when you don't take it seriously enough to do it full-time I think part-time you have at least for me personally I think subconsciously I felt I was treating it as a hobby and someone's purchasing a house, most likely the biggest purchase and most important purchase they will make in their entire life. And how can I insist that someone that is doing that utilize my services if I'm just treating it as a hobby? I wouldn't want someone to do that to me, and I had problems applying myself when I knew the competition was maybe full-time and treating it a little bit more serious than I was.
1: So it sounds like you had a slow start, And then it ramped up after you went full-time? Yes. How long have you been in the business? Eight years. Last year, how many homes did you sell?
0: I think last year was 92.
1: 92 homes sold last year. That's fantastic. Do you have any assistance? Do you have a team? No team, no. So you did that all by yourself? Yes. Wow. So I guess that proves you don't need a big team to be successful.
0: No, I, I don't think you do, and it does the front-end work of just creating a system that works for you saves you time in the long run. and that's been the, the big difference for me is being able to set up systems for every step of the process for REO business, being you, know, from you get that initial assignment, establishing occupancy, working uh, cash for key negotiations, all the way through to the close of ESCO, just having it set in stone a method that you're going to use for each step. And also, I would probably say the, the best way to do that, if, as an REO business, if you have accounts with various banks, chances are each bank is going to have slightly different criteria to how they want it done. The best bet, in my experience, has been to take the most difficult one where they are, have the most hoops for you to jump through and apply that across the board. And then your other accounts will be thrilled to death because you're going above and beyond what they're expecting and you're definitely keeping the one that set that bar uh, happy as well.
1: That's great advice. We'll come back to systems in a minute. Before we get too deep into what you're doing, let's talk about where you are your market. You're in Sacramento, California. Where is Sacramento, California?
0: Northern California, it's about an hour to an hour and a half east of San Francisco and about an hour and a half to two hours west of Lake Tahoe, right in the valley. Describe your current real estate market. The average price right now is probably going to be around 180 to 200 but the inventory for us currently is very low. The majority of homes that do sell are bank-owned properties. There's barely any equity sales in the area right now. That does change slightly as you go to more established neighborhoods, They're a little bit more protected from the market as it's gone through its downturn. But the values across the border have not gone up anywhere here. And that's in Sacramento, Placer, Yolo, and El Dorado counties. That's the four counties that are right here in the valley. As a result of the inventory being low, which is, my understanding is, it's a result of the government kind of putting limitations on the banks and how fast they can move through their backlog of bank-owned properties. So buyers are uh, very aggressive once, market, uh, once homes do come on the market. So it's not uncommon to see multiple offers uh, from these buyers because interest rates are so low right now. It's a great opportunity for these people that waited or maybe even they were foreclosed on in 2008 and are finally able to purchase a home again. Uh, it's a great opportunity as far as the cost to borrow money goes. Um, unfortunately, that there's, there's just not a whole lot of inventory out there for them. And as a result, the homes that do hit the market, they sell fast. I would say that a bank owned house on the market priced right is going to be gone in, in two weeks. Easy, easy. But then we do have a lot of short sale properties and I'm sure as everyone knows the short sale transactions, it's a case by case, but I, they tend to take forever, you know, you're talking about 40-day, 40 45, 60-day escrows, and I do think that eventually, as buyers put offers out there on properties and become more familiar with what a short sale transaction means, they start to steer away from those and focus more on the houses that are either equity sales or or bank-owned properties. And there are, you know, there are a handful of flips in this area now as well, as investors have started to be um, pushed out of the pricing for the homes in the MLS, because so many first-time home buyers are there with low interest rates, they now move to the foreclosure sales, and auctions at the courthouse and try to get good deals there, fix them up, and put them back on the market.
1: How far down do you think your market has fallen from the top to where it is today? Has it fallen by 10%,
0: 20%? It depends on the neighborhood, but if you take the neighborhoods that were most known for Fast appreciation, which would be if you look at a map of Sacramento at the center of Sacramento, those are the older, more established neighborhoods. They don't fluctuate quite that much, but as you go out in rings around the city, you'll find various neighborhoods at each ring that were built, you know, say the 70s and then the 80s and then the 90s and then the newer homes in the 2000s. And those houses, oh man, they fell drastically uh, from what their highs were to today. It's not uncommon to see houses that were in the, in some of the rough neighborhoods of Sacramento it's not uncommon to see a home that was 200 to 250,000 in 2005 that today is literally a $40,000 home and i don't know what that price adjustment is but that's a significant price drop uh you can go then into maybe just not a, necessarily a rough neighborhood but a a blue collar neighborhood and Maybe those people were stretching their limits to to get those homes. They probably purchased them in the three hundred thousand dollar range, and today they're worth about one hundred and fifty. So, I mean, it's significant drops in those areas that are hardest hit from from the downturn in our market.
1: So that's pretty significant. A lot of people underwater.
0: Yes, yes. And here locally, I would say what started the the snowball uh, rolling was we had so many investors and speculators coming in from wealthier areas in the Bay Area. And they would come here and they would see our house prices here that for us, I think locals would think, wow, that's really high at 300000 or 350000 in some of these neighborhoods. But for someone out of the Bay Area, they would think it was cheap. And so they would uh, invest in these properties and just with the hope that it would a- continue to appreciate so that they could sell it in a short period of time and make money without much work. And when the market started to tank, they were out in a flash, and they started cutting their prices, the, the asking prices on their homes to get out. And all of those drove down the values for everyone else, and it just started that snowball rolling. And that's why those outer areas are the hardest hit because they were even at that time when they were priced in the $300,000 range, high in comparison today. Well, at that time, in comparison to the older, more established neighborhoods, they were still a bargain to someone looking from the outside in.
1: Do you think that the values in your market have stabilized? Are they continuing to fall? Are they starting to rise?
0: I would say that for the past year and a half to two years, values here appear to have stabilized quite a bit. They're definitely not dropping at the rate that they used to, nowhere near 50%. Some of the nicer neighborhoods you'll see that you can look at values from two thousand nine two thousand ten to today, and let's say you established a price bracket and said, "I think this home is worth three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand in two thousand nine, and you could probably say today for the exact same house, I think it's worth three forty to to three eighty you know where the brackets overlap, and it's likely that it's probably the exact same price as it was then
1: so it's flattened out, yeah, oh yeah. And you've mentioned this already, but you do have a niche. Yes. And your niche is the REO sales? Yes. Have you had that niche
0: since day one? Not at all. When I started out, I just was trying to work my sphere of influence. And that didn't pan out as much business as I had hoped. And then I transitioned from that into doing for sale by owners when they still existed and expired listings. And I hammered away on that. And as the market started to turn, my listings that I got from my expired calls, some of them turned into short sales just because the values were dropping around us. And that was the only next step. That was the next step that was required of us was to try a short sale. And it was through that that it opened up some doors for me with REO business. How long
1: ago was it that you started the REO? What year was that? 2007. 2007. So you've been doing it for about four years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you got into the REO business, how did that start? What was your your foot in the door? You said you were working the short sell market and the REO market opened up. What exactly happened?
0: Well, it's kind of dynamic. So in the beginning of 2007, Coldwell Bankers started doing a program that they called, I think it was called Monday Morning Quarterback. And what it was was some of their biggest agents agreed on a Monday to come in and do a presentation on whatever their business model happened to be that was allowing them to be successful in the changing market. The very first person that did that was an agent named Carlos and he had been very successful in the traditional market that we had prior to the distressed market we were going into, but he continued to be successful into this distressed market, which caught my attention. I went and listened to his presentation, and he had been doing real estate for many years, and had the experience, and the knowledge from the 90s when our area had experienced REO sales previously. Experience that, unfortunately for me, because of my age, I had no opportunity to ex- gain anything from that. I didn't. I had never even heard of an REO sale when I started business. Um, there were agents that were big today that, and had been big, you know, 10 years before during that time that were doing almost no business that I had heard of. So I went and listened to him as something completely foreign to me, and he outlined the steps that he had taken back in the 90s and then again in 2006 in order to position himself as being a resource to banks and servicers as this market started to change to where he thought it was going. And he ended up being right. And I took notes on everything he said, and... I had been doing the expired phone calls at that time, then I just decided, you know what, I'm going to take this information and do both, I decided that there's no reason to be intimidated by a bank, there's still people there making decisions and those people are no different than the people that I'm calling on every day anyways, other than the difference that they have a portfolio of properties to sell versus just one or two and I started doing that in February 2007. And I put together a whole marketing plan and a resume and everything I would do for my expired listings I did to pursue this REO business. And every point where I got in contact with a decision maker, the response was always the same. We love what you're presenting. We love your work ethic. We love this marketing plan. However, do you have experience in REO sales? And without experience, the door was shut. I got no opportunities whatsoever for months and months and months. And it started to get a little frustrating, but sometimes you work really hard in order to attain a goal and you're not going to get to that point. You're not going to achieve that goal directly. And that's what happened with me through my expired listings, getting uh, the short sales. One of my properties in a not-so-great neighborhood that was a short sale, I was negotiating with it. I was able to get the first to agree to it and the the second was a small credit union and they would not approve the sale and eventually the home was foreclosed on and the i don't know what his position was and I definitely didn't know when he called me I probably would have peed my pants being so nervous that I knew who he was but basically an executive from a bank contacted me on a house that had been foreclosed on the day before he was personally driving the neighborhood to find out, you know, get a better sense of what was going on. And of the houses he was checking on, one happened to be this one that I had as a short sale. He saw my flyers and and my sign in the front yard, and he gave me a call. And, man, he gave me a shot.
1: You started to pursue the banks with cold calls, didn't get enough traction, and then just fell into it by luck because you had signage out in an area that a bank was interested in.
0: That and through all of my attempts to try and get in the door, it gave me the confidence on the subject matter in order to talk with this person when he called so that when he called and he was asking me questions, I think I was able to present myself as knowing something, (laughs) knowing what I was talking about. And as a result, he, he gave me a shot. He gave me, he, he heard the discouragement in my voice, uh, when I heard him tell me that the house was foreclosed. And he asked me why that was. And I I told him, I was like, well, you know, I know what that means. I'm out of the loop. I wasn't able to get the second approved. And all this work for months is kind of down the drain. And he said, well, I'll give you a shot. So it was luck. But uh, that opportunity could have presented itself without all of the work I did before, and nothing would have come of it. I wouldn't have known what to say. I wouldn't have had the confidence to say anything, I probably would have said, okay, thanks for letting me know and hanging up. So that was your first REO assignment.
1: Was that the house that was in short sale or was the different home in the neighborhood?
0: It was that one. And there was one other a few blocks away that was a little bit more rundown than this one. So he gave me uh, what he felt were the two worst properties in his portfolio <laughs> to basically see what I was made of. How did you know what to do? I went to the resources I had here at Coldwell Banker. I went and spoke with other agents that I knew did REO business in the past, in the 90s, and who were also starting to do it again at that time in 2007 and got their advice, asked for help. And my experience has been that successful people have always been more than happy to help you if you're genuinely asking for help.
1: Now, was this gentleman, was he actually working for the bank or was he an
0: asset manager? He was a few steps above an asset manager. He was like the in charge of the people that are in charge of asset managers.
1: How did the business develop from there? Did you continue to work with that
0: bank and grow a relationship? I did. So that gave me the experience on those first two properties. I, I guess I passed the test on what they were looking for and I was introduced to two asset managers that were in charge of this region at the time and I started working with them and the way it worked back then was they would ask me to do broker price opinions for free and then if anything came back I would be given an assignment I started doing that for them I did so many BPOs for them as again You just develop a system to be able to do it. But there's a lot of BPOs that I did, but I always did them myself so that whenever the asset managers would call with questions, I had personally seen the house and I had personally looked at the comps and I had personally developed the value. So again, whenever there was a question asked, I had the answer. It wasn't me scrambling around for notes from somebody else. And I think that, you know, translates well to someone. It makes them feel more confident in your ability and they trust you and they're more willing to give you additional work. You did come in secondarily through the BPO work,
1: did a lot of BPO work, and you said you did those for free. It didn't uh, scare you that you weren't getting paid?
0: No. I'm probably too trusting, but they told me how they wanted it to be done, and it was an opportunity, and I had already had so many months of having doors shut in my face trying to get into this type of business that I was willing to take that risk. I thought the risk was nothing in comparison to the reward that could potentially be there.
1: How long before you got additional assignments? You had the first two assignments. Did you immediately get more assignments or did it take a while to build that back up?
0: I got the first two and after I sold them, so maybe about 45 days to 60 days later, they then gave me another two. That slowly progressed. So that would have been my first assignments were in August of 2007, closed those in September, and then it just slowly progressed maybe three at a time and then maybe four at any given time until I got into 2008. And then 2008, it really started to pick up, but it really picked up for every agent that did that type of business in 2008 here.
1: So you caught the trend, you caught the wave at that point. Right. Did you start trying to add other banks or other asset managers?
0: I did. I did. That was the missing key for me to open doors. So once I had the experience of just selling those two, I started resending out applications, resumes, and pointing out that now I had sold an REO property. And as far as I was concerned, that was enough REO experience to satisfy that requirement. And I got in with a couple of servicers, one of which, was actually the result of, like I had said before, an agent had the account and the REO type of business just wasn't for them. Some of the agents that were very successful in the boom had become, I don't know, they got used to a certain way of practicing real estate and REO business is completely different. I know you and I had tried to schedule an appointment to do this interview a couple weeks ago, and it just didn't work out because as requirements and things come up on the property, you're the person in the field locally for the bank that has to check everything. There's no homeowner to do these things, and there's a lot of work involved that I think sometimes people are surprised how much work actually goes into the REO type of business. And I've gained some accounts because people weren't comfortable with having to do some things that they thought were probably outside of what they should have to do. And I didn't sign up for this. So I'm not going to do this. I think having a good level of energy helps you to just take it all in and appreciate the opportunities and, and work through it. And you have to take the good with the bad. and all the work that goes into it is can be perceived by some at that time to be bad because no one knew what the reward was. No one knew, why am I doing all of these additional things that I am not asked to do for any other real estate transaction? But for me, I was more than happy to do it. How did you know which banks to go talk to? Well, I didn't. So I used to sit there on Google, and and there's just these terms – that I was unfamiliar with, you know, broker price opinions and real estate owned and foreclosure and asset manager and, um, loss mitigation, which was more of a short sale thing, but you Google stuff like that. It does, it's going to trigger things for other banks. And I just would Google that. And then the things that came up, I would, write down the numbers or if there are emails, I would, I had an email, little template email I would send out. I still have an email template that I send out because it's just the way this type of business is. You have to have a certain degree of paranoia and you have to push yourself constantly to the limit of what you, the, the maximum amount of work that you can do just so that any, any adverse change to any of your accounts doesn't just ruin your business. And so I would just google the names I would google terms i would just i would go to you know wells dot com or bank of dot com and put in their little search parameters of what I was looking for and see if anything came up and anything that came up, I would send it It also works just to step into the into the branches and at that time in two thousand seven they weren't big on Pairing you up with a loan officer, but now in today's environment, uh, that's an opportunity in itself. You know, there's a lot of banks—Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, Chase—they're all trying to recapture their the the borrowers because they can make money on so many different aspects of banking. If they can get them as a, a borrower for a new loan, and so just going into a branch and speaking with a branch manager and You know, and asking them if they have any information or if they could help point you in the right direction. You know, not asking anyone to give you a handout, but that you have a service that you feel is valuable and want to see if uh, there's some sort of opportunity with them. And I've done that even today, trying to add new accounts. I think that works as well. How many accounts
1: do you have today? How many banks are you working with? Right now, it's about... Are you working just with the private banks or are you also working with some government entities like HUD, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac?
0: I work very limited with HUD but it is not a part of of the HUD that everyone else would know there's a lot of HUD homes that go up for sale here in our area uh, but I'm not part of that program somehow I got in I got a phone call from an asset manager that manages this particular portfolio and it's a special division of HUD, so yes and no.
1: What's in that special division? It's something different from the
0: mainstream HUD? Are they selling different types of homes? The portfolio is comprised of properties that are somehow related to Native American borrowers in the past, and it, the system is completely different. The HUD and the Fannie Mae systems are very regimented and you know do task A to get to task B sort of thing, Whereas my experience with this particular HUD account is very old-fashioned. It's very similar to how it was for me when I first started where I'm talking with the asset manager directly on the phone or going over things through emails and there's not a web portal to do anything, creating forms in order to uh, get bids together or uh, establish pricing using my own listing agreement, which you don't see with any of the other banks. Fannie Mae definitely doesn't allow you to use your own listing agreement. It's just very a mom-and-pop-esque type of account. So, And like I said, he contacted me just through seeing my online marketing. It's not even geared towards adding more accounts. It just kind of goes over you know, some of my past business. And he saw it and gave me a call. But again, that opportunity was specifically the result of someone else practicing real estate in a way that they probably shouldn't have been doing it and the opportunity presented itself for me.
1: Are you working with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac? I am not. The HUD business that you have, what percentage
0: of your overall business is that? One percent. I'm talking like one, one property here and there, and, and the territory is huge because, like I said, it's a small, small branch of HUD, and, and they don't have a... A network of agents to use. So I go quite a distance for them. And, and the houses, they're not popping out constantly. I think the asset managers for them literally cover the entire country and those properties come up in a different region. They have an agent for each region and, and those regions are pretty big. So yeah, I know, you know not talking about a whole lot of business from them. So the majority of your business is coming
1: from these four private banks.
0: Yeah. Well, one one bank directly, and three servicers.
1: Yeah, let's talk about how you developed those relationships. You said you went out to try to find the banks and the servicers by doing searches on Google, looking up terms and different banks. Once you determined that you found somebody, what were you sending out to them? How were you contacting them? Were you sending them stuff by email? Were you calling them on the phone? And, and what were you saying or, or sending them?
0: At that time, I was sending out emails with my resume that went over the different designations that I had earned, explaining what those designations were, explaining why me having that knowledge or expertise in those different areas that the designations represented was a benefit to them. And I gave them examples of my marketing, uh, things that I used to market a house because Just my personal thing, because I live in in Sacramento where these REO properties are, I do feel that it's the duty of these agents to market the home just like they would any other home to try and get the most value for it. So that was one of the very key elements of my message to the banks when I called was that I was a full-time agent, that I have the experience of selling homes in the area. I'm an expert in these neighborhoods that they have assets in, and here are the the tools that I'm going to implement in order to sell your house for the most money in the shortest amount of time.
1: Just like you would a normal homeowner.
0: Yes. And I think that's critical that people know that that's how you have to go about pursuing this type of business. There's more work that goes into it than with a traditional homeowner. And so you have to go at it with that mindset, knowing that it's it's going to be a lot of work and presenting to the the person you're trying to get the business from that you know that it's a lot of work and you're eager to do that work, that you're not intimidated by the, the scope of the work that they're going to request from you.
1: You mentioned that you have an email template that you send out each time to these banks to try to open the door. Would you be willing to share a copy of that with us?
0: Sure. I mean, I don't think there's anything special about it. Let me open it up right now, but I mean, yeah, it's just I've even sent it recently, just uh the way I do it for even today trying to get new accounts is like for instance, in the m l s sometimes now the servicer or the bank that owns the property will have the listing agent put seller instructions to help buyer agents submit their offers in a more complete package well, go I would go and look at those and see what are the the keywords on whatever form or instruction that that is, and then go Google that, and then start sending them stuff. Or you see a properties bank owned in the MLS, go check the county records and see who's the owner of record on there. And again, start doing the same thing. You know, it should have a mailing address on there. Start sending the mailers out. And I mean, that's a great resource that didn't exist when I first started. And so that's what I do today in order to to find points, to send stuff out to people.
1: So that's telling you who is active in your area, which banks are active in your
0: area? It gives you um, some direction on on where to go, yeah.
1: Are you finding email addresses or phone numbers in there as well?
0: No, I mean, you have to go through a couple steps to find that stuff, but it gives you the names to Google in order to get somewhere where there will be email addresses and phone numbers.
1: Oh, so you're talking about an asset manager's name or a servicer's name.
0: Right, a servicer's name. Because a servicer's name can have off-the-wall names that you would never know. They're not a publicly known thing. You know, so like AHMSI is one of the services that I work for, which stands for American Home Mortgage Servicing. They originally, when I first started working for them, that was Option 1 Mortgage, which was the lending arm of H&R Block. And they've gone through several name changes as, uh, I think, H&R Block, cut that from them and it went independent or maybe even picked up by somebody else but I would never have known either of those names on my own I mean it was through googling different terms and seeing things come up and knowing oh okay so this company or this business is related to the type of business that I'm interested in and then pursuing that more you know it's like walking down a path and just not knowing exactly how to get where you're going but taking the, the clues at each point and moving forward my template that you just asked about, the email that I sent out, I will gladly send it to you, but it's very specific to me. I mean, it says who I am, where I work at, and I'm interested in joining their broker network. It goes over how long I've been doing REO business, how many REO properties I've sold, what my average days on market is, what my average sales price to list price is, the different companies that I've worked with. You know, it's all very specific to me. Is that email that
1: you send, are you considering that your resume, or do you attach a resume to it as well?
0: No, I attach a resume to it.
1: So you basically restate the highlights in your cover letter, this email, and then inside is a more detailed description of you in your resume. Exactly. So you have the cover letter email, you have the resume attached. Anything else you send them to try to open the door?
0: No, that's what I send right off the bat, and then kind of if you get a response from them. And sometimes their response will have additional instructions for, that they specifically want you to do. It's not a, wouldn't be a cookie cutter thing. You wouldn't know what the next step is until they respond. And how do you follow up with them
1: if they haven't responded within a certain amount of time? What do you do next?
0: I CC myself on all outgoing email, regardless, because all my real estate business, I CC myself. And I create files in my Outlook for every single property. And so I have a folder it's called bank own folder, but then uh, the very first subfolder in there, I labeled it pursuing new bank accounts. And then in this folder is all of the banks that I don't work for or servicers that I want to uh, get business from. I add names to it as I use the methods I told you before to identify other servicers and banks that I don't work for to try and get business from them. And so I create folders for each one, and then when I send out this email that I've created once with my resume, I send it to them and I CC myself and I save it into that folder. And then, you know, once a month I'll go through each of these servicer or or bank folders and I'll look and I'll say, okay, I emailed them on this day and either I have heard back and there was, you know, there was some back and forth or I haven't heard back, I'll follow up again. You pair that with phone calls and, and emails and just repeatedly do that. There is no magic pill. That's the only way that it works because I can be emailing and calling them today and the asset manager or the division could be thrilled to death with everyone in their network. They have plenty of brokers in their their broker network. They have no needs for anything. And I may get that same response uh, next month and the month after that. But mistakes are made. Sometimes personalities clash and inevitably an opportunity will pop up. They're not going to remember your email or your phone call from three months ago, and they'll tell you that they're going to save your information, but don't believe that for a heartbeat. You have to be the one that just is constantly there putting your name into their mind so that you are what they think of when that opportunity arises, or at least to give you the best opportunity to be the one that they think of. So just doing a a single email to anyone at any given time is not going to have that great a result. It's like winning the lottery if that were to work the very first time you did it. I can tell you from talking with the agents around here who call, you know, because other agents call agents and ask. And that's another great way to do it. I don't think any agent would um, be offended or upset to receive a phone call from someone asking for help or guidance on what to do. That's just another method to use. How often do you try to
1: contact this new business category? Are you trying to touch base with them once a month or a couple times a month?
0: Yeah, once a month.
1: You mentioned both email and phone calls. Your follow-up email, is it just a short little note to say, hey, I want to see if you got my resume, or do you resend that entire resume template?
0: I will resend it. I may reference that, hey, I reached out to you a month ago or previously or whenever it was, but I will always resend it because there's no guarantee that they I would actually think that it's most likely that they don't still have it. So you just want to make sure that it's available for them. You have to make it as easy as possible for them to pick you as it can be because uh, they're they're so inundated with requests from agents and people pursuing business and then dealing with the agents that they already have and whatever headaches we agents create for them. They're just not going to put too much effort into helping you, so you have to do your best to help them help you, if that makes any sense.
1: You also try to make a phone call?
0: I don't. If I was in a position where I was starving for business and I definitely needed to add some more of these accounts, then I would. Especially for me, because I'd only do it by myself. It's a weird balancing act, where new business actually is a risk for my existing business. Because you only have so much time in a day, and you only have so much energy in your body, and. So anything new is taking both of those from you. By definition, someone that you're already working with is losing a little bit of that. Now, if they're not giving you enough business, then it doesn't matter. They don't notice. But at some point, you do run the risk of having too many clients and not enough time. And I'm not personally interested in creating a huge team to accommodate for that, so that's the tight rope that I choose to walk. Because I'm in a position where I'm pretty comfortable My drive to add new accounts isn't that fierce where I would be calling. I just stick to the emails right now because it's the easiest, least time-consuming method for me to at least keep my pole in the water. How many assignments are you receiving each month? Oh, right now it's super slow. When the year started, I had a goal of I just wanted to do two properties a week which is is kind of on the slow side as far as I was concerned in my past experience of years previous, I would be okay because I know that there's moratoriums in place that have just been ravaging the available inventory for agents and buyers alike. So that was my goal. And then over summer, it got even slower. So right now, I would say that I'm probably getting around five to eight new properties a month, But you have to be selling them in order to get new ones. But it works. Don't get me wrong. Uh, When they do actually hit the market, they sell fast, so that's not a problem. Um, But yeah, I would say around between five and eight in any given month. And how many
1: total assignments do you have right now? Total right now,
0: it looks like I have about 11. How many of those are
1: under contract?
0: Two of them have multiple offers that are being considered. The thing is, is some of these banks have requirements of seven days on the market before they'll review any offers, and then after that, they only look at owner-occupants, and then after two weeks, then they'll consider investors. So it causes some of these to sit a little bit longer than they otherwise would. But of that 11, I think three or four of them will go pending as soon as those days pass, and the bank can actually go into contract with one of them.
1: Have you experienced the banks limiting you to a certain number of listings or assignments at any time?
0: Not me personally, but I do know that they do that. One thing that they didn't do in the past that they do do, and I love, is that a lot of servicers and banks have scoring matrices. Somehow they create a a grade for you as an agent. They obviously don't share openly the inner workings of how they decide to do things with us agents. But what I've been able to gather is that your score does influence how many properties they'll assign to you. Right now, the market is so slow across the board for REO agents in Sacramento that I don't think anyone is in risk of pushing up against that limit. But me personally, I've never had the limit put on me. You have to understand that you should limit yourself if if that ever does come up. I would personally – just explain to them, hey, I have X amount and not, I can't accept this particular assignment. And I don't think that anyone would have a problem with that if you explain to them why you were unable to accept an assignment at, on any given day because they have other brokers in the network that they can give it to. Because you don't want to just keep accepting and accepting and accepting when it is very busy because uh, eventually you will just melt down and then you'll lose everything. And that's not good. <laughs> The
1: banks have a lot of options today on who they choose. Why do you think that banks hire you? What's your competitive advantage?
0: Well, without question, my competitive advantage for the majority of my accounts is I have first hand knowledge of anything that they're going to ask me. I personally am meeting the securing crews, I'm personally the one talking with the occupants for occupied buyers. I have the experience of countless cash for key negotiations, which is a grading criteria now for banks where I'm able to help people see that there's more benefit in maybe taking a financial relocation assistance option versus waiting out an eviction period. I have a network of contractors now from my experience of doing this for a while where any problem comes up at any of my houses, that's rural houses, the stuff here in the city. I have someone on hand that can take care of it. Because they get regular business from me and with these banks, their, their costs aren't as high as they would be if I was having to go to someone who wasn't familiar with REO business. But at the same time, they also understand the high level of workmanship that's expected from them. Because everything that we do here locally is a reflection on the bank that owns it. I think all that helps. I know for a fact that I take my marketing of these homes very seriously and I know that that helps me. Because for the asset managers that are located on other sides of the country, I'm able to provide them with tons of pictures, even the smallest home i'll I'll end up having you know a hundred photos and and then when you get into an average home of a three two fourteen hundred square feet, I could have you know hundred and twenty pictures so that even though they're not here, they feel comfortable being familiar with what their asset is and if anything comes up, i can my first hand- knowledge hands on experience of things allows me to answer any questions they have when they ask, not them calling, asking me something and saying, hold on, let me get back to you. And then calling someone else or leaning over to someone to ask them because they're the ones that know. Me doing everything myself does, it's a time commitment, but you know, and I have a wife and a son and, but at the same time, the benefit of that is uh, when the questions come, I'm ready to answer them uh, from my own personal knowledge. I think that Translates over to them very well.
1: Now a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now back to the show. You've mentioned marketing these properties several times. What are you doing to market these properties out to the public?
0: I do flyers for all of my properties, which probably sounds basic for traditional agents, but for REO agents, it's not common. Um, It's becoming more common. And um, I do internet marketing through my company, and then I pay additional money for any of my listings to get more exposure. For, um, for the different websites like Trulia and Zillow, Realtor.com. And the Internet marketing is, is key for me because it allows me to showcase the home with all of the photos. I, I make sure that I have at least 25 photos of any of my homes, of marketing photos, you know, photos that make the house look good, so that people that maybe don't live in the area that are looking to buy in Sacramento have a good understanding as to what the house is. And my experience has been that when you do when you spend a, a good amount of time on your marketing, you're presenting the home in its best light. And people get excited about that house, regardless if it's REO or not. And so then they call their agent and they're excited to come see this house. It's in their price range, and they come, and they have these great photos that they are already familiar with of the home. So they're coming through the home, and they're looking, oh, that's right, I saw this in the picture. It looks great, and it looks even better in person. I saw this, I saw that. The opposite of that is if you don't adequately market the home, or you poorly market it, all of a sudden people are like, wow, well, this house is in the neighborhood that I'm interested in. It's in the price range, but hmm, well, these, they're not a lot of pictures. I wonder what's wrong with the house. Ah, You don't want them showing up with that mindset because then they show up and that's what they're looking for. Hmm, why didn't the agent take pictures of the kitchen or why didn't they take pictures of the backyard or, you know, and they're looking for things that are wrong. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you want that? If, If you can help it, why would you want that to be the potential buyer's thought process? I'd rather them be excited, be looking for things that are good about the house, identify things that they like, versus coming through and, and nitpicking the thing and thinking that it's a junker and looking for reasons as to why I didn't do something that I could have done. In addition to that, I also do virtual tours for all of my houses. It's through a, a separate company, and I just play a, I pay a flat fee each month, and I'm able to do unlimited number of, of tours, and it allows me to do uh, – way more photos for marketing purposes than the uh, than our local MLS allows for here. Our local MLS here has a limitation of 25 maximum photos. And I think realtor.com has a similar limitation. I don't know about the other websites, but um, I think they're all very similar. So my virtual tours allows me to add a link to my MLS marketing that then pops up on all of my other websites so that people can see the photos of the home that I was able to put in, plus additional ones. It allows them to get a, a better view of the entire house. You know, maybe not just looking into the room from one angle, but looking at it from the reverse angle as well. Um, so you get a view of the idea of how big the room is or whatnot. You know, there's all kinds of things that buyers are looking for and not looking for it. If you can answer some of those questions up front, it just saves time and makes them more committed to the house when they do show up.
1: On these virtual tours, you said you're paying a flat fee for an unlimited number. Are you putting the camera in the room and spinning it around, or is somebody else coming out and doing that?
0: No, I do it myself. I like taking pictures. I do I do photo stuff for fun on the side. Not, I mean, it's total amateur stuff, but I love it. When I first started doing audio business, one of the agents told me, you should develop a system to taking your photos because you're going to take so many pictures of different houses. If you don't have a system, you're going to get lost in your photos. You're not going to know what the pictures of, where the room's located and whatnot. So I do that and I took that advice and and I have a system of how I take the pictures through the house. And as a result, number one, it's very helpful for me to refresh my memory on something when I'm looking at the pictures. But number two, when I take my marketing pictures, I take them in the same way. And it's just the repetition of that has allowed me To get pretty good at taking marketing pictures of a house. You know, I can't take a picture of your family, but I can take a picture of the living room. What is that pattern? What is that system? My pattern is just, I take a picture in one direction and then of the ceiling, and then I go on the opposite side and take a picture in the opposite direction, and then of the floor. And now in between there, if I take a picture in the first direction and there's something that catches my eye like a a broken outlet plate or a hole in the wall or a cracked window from there i will go and i'll take close-ups of those items which will help agents for their avid their agent visual inspection disclosures but then it also gives me a reference to okay this is the room i'm looking at and all these pictures are of this room and then once i take a picture of the floor which is You know, it's for me to know the condition of the carpet or the flooring or to see if there's any leaks if I'm in the bathroom. But it also signifies that this is the last picture of this room. The next picture will be of the following room. And I try to take those where, like when I'm taking the picture down at the floor, that it's in the direction of the next room I'm going to go to. So for instance, if if I'm taking a picture of a bedroom, I would be standing at the doorway looking into the bedroom, take a picture. Then take a picture of the ceiling so I can see if there's any leaks uh, sometimes things catch on the flash of a digital camera that you wouldn't otherwise see. and that's, I mean, it's important stuff. Or a hole, or uh, maybe you don't realize that a smoke detector is missing until you look at the pictures later and your your attention is focused on that single photograph. But then I would go to the opposite end of the room and take a picture looking out back towards that door that I just came through and then take a picture of the floor condition so that I know that I'm now leaving that room and going into the next one. It sounds silly, but it helps. So you try to
1: take a diagonal pattern across the room from one corner to the other, or do you try to take a picture from each corner of the room?
0: Uh, No, that's the way you described it at first.
1: The diagonal. You'll walk in the door on one end of the room, one corner of the room, take a picture, and then walk over to the other corner looking back. And then how do you keep all the rooms straight? Do you draw a diagram of the layout or the floor plan? How do you keep the picture straight that this was the first bedroom, and not the second or third bedroom?
0: Uh, You know, it's just based on how the flow of the house goes. I always first, before I start taking my pictures, walk the entire house and look at it. I also turn on every single light in the house. Uh, It's some weird thing that I just do because you never know, especially for marketing photos, a light in a hallway on the far end that you don't think matters can make a big difference between something looking inviting and warm and something looking creepy and dark. So I walk through the whole house, I turn all the lights on, I get a feel for the layout, and then I take my pictures based on that. But I don't, write any, I don't draw a diagram by any means. As you take the pictures in, in that sequence and, and knowing uh, the beginning and end of each room and taking them in a way so that the end of one room leads to the beginning of the next, it's pretty simple to understand the, the flow of the house. Do you use a special camera for these pictures? I use a Sony CyberShot. It's my primary camera, and it's fast, and I love it because it automatically changes its settings depending on lighting, which is super helpful. I do, at times, use my iPhone 4, (laughs) which, uh, surprisingly, does a great job. It does a really good job, but it's not as fast. It's very time-consuming to use that, and it's more just as a hobby. So I use the CyberShot more than anything. It's a little handheld camera. It seems to get the best range. I also have a Nikon. My Nikon uh, D3100 I use for exterior. It captures, it deals with the sunlight a little bit better than the little CyberShot can. It doesn't wash out the whole photo. And uh, it does, at times, do a better job of just capturing exterior landscaping um, in comparison to the, the CyberShot.
1: Are you taking all these pictures by hand, or are you also using a stand or a tripod? No, I take it all by hand. Are these properties that you're selling, are they typically being sold as is, as you receive them, or are you also involved
0: in repairs? For the majority of them, I'm involved in repairs. For a long period of time, it was only one of my accounts that did that, which was my first account, the one where the guy called me. But now other banks have realized the benefit of doing that, and I've also adopted this outlook that any of these bank-owned properties are a reflection on themselves. So what's the point of spending millions of dollars on a commercial if you're going to ruin it by having a junky house next door to all these neighbors? For the most part, I'm overseeing a rehab of them, and it is my responsibility to create that rehab list and then kind of narrate to the asset manager why I think something should or shouldn't be addressed and what the benefit would be or if it's just wasted money. Are they typically going with your suggestions? Yeah, typically they do. You know, it helps to have a good connection with a loan officer so that they can keep you up to date on what what appraisers are looking for. Because if you can take care of those, that's the best thing to do because then you're increasing your potential buyer pool. And the more buyers in the pool, the more money or the faster sale that you can potentially get.
1: How do you keep up to date with what loan officers and appraisers are looking
0: for? My wife's a loan officer of 10 years, so she's a perfect resource for me as far as that goes because she's an expert in the field. And then I have assigned loan officers from my different accounts who I reach out to all the time because I also direct business back towards them in appreciation for the business that their company gives to me. And so it's their criterias that are most important, and they help fill me in on what the responses are on current transactions and any red flags or hang-ups that pop up during any of those transactions, and then we address them going forward. And, you know, they tend to recur, so then you get a good understanding from experience as to what you should address and what you don't need to. You're having to make
1: estimates of the cost of the repairs How are you doing that? Are you bringing contractors out each time? Do you just have a general rule of thumb in your head? Use a book? How do you do it?
0: I used to just send out contractors and I would have no personal expectation as to what something would cost. But that was four years ago and now today I do have a general idea as to how much different things cost to repair, specifically carpet for a house, paint for a house replacement of interior doors versus a man door from the garage to the interior, you know, that solid door would be different. And so for my banks that don't necessarily do rehabs all the time, I can give them an estimate. And then if they like the estimate, they'll then ask me to get a formal bid from a contractor. But for for the bank accounts where they do do the rehabs more times than they don't, I send the contractors first, but I always create the bid sheet myself because I have to create the bid sheet and then get approval from the bank that they're willing to do these repairs, depending on what the cost ends up being when we get the formal numbers. But you know, first I have to make sure I'm not having the contractors do a bunch of busy work that, for nothing because then they'll just get upset and they won't want to bid anymore for you.
1: You're doing a lot of rehab on these properties now. What is the typical time frame for that rehab process? Is it taking a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple
0: months? For me, the average should be three days once I get approval. So day one, the house is empty. Let's say the house is empty day one. I walk it. I take all of my before photos, and I go back to my office. I put all the before photos on the computer, and I look through them on the computer because For me personally, it helps me to focus on each room and not be distracted by everything else that's going on around me so that I can more clearly identify a hole in the wall or a hole in the ceiling or excessive stains on the carpet that maybe there's not enough lighting there, maybe just I'm in a house where I don't want to be standing there taking notes for an hour, et cetera. And so I will then take those before photos and I'll create the bid sheet on that same day, send it off for approval. Once I get the approval, which is normally within minutes, I send an email out to the different contractors that I work with, and I give them the address for the house. I attach this bid sheet that I've written up for them and ask them to go look at it. They're required to get me a response within 24 hours, so the following day I have the numbers. I send that for approval, and I should get again approval response that same day, and then I notify the contractors. They should start within 24 hours again. So from me stepping foot in a vacant house, a new assignment, two days later, three days later, there should be a crew in there working, and it should take them about three days to get their job done. Obviously, if it's an extensive rehab, it's different, but if it's needing carpet, paint, replacement of a few doors, wallpaper removal or retexturing of some walls, trash out, initial yard cleanup, all of those things should be able to be done for me, in my opinion, in my experience. Other people may be different, but my expectation is three days. Because, you know, you don't have to uh, paint the house and then do the yard. Uh, You can do them at the same time. (laughs) You you don't have to, uh, you know, and it's just the crews I work with know the expectation and that's what they're used to now. That's normally the timeframes we work with. Sounds like you're trying to achieve the goal uh, from the
1: minute you get the property to the minute the rehab is done of a week. Yes, that is the goal. That is the goal.
0: It's not my goal. That's the expectation of the bank.
1: So they're setting that time frame, and you figured out how to meet it.
0: Right. The most difficult bank has set that as the time frame. The other ones are more lenient on that. But like I was said originally, it's better to take that the highest bar and clear that, because then all the bars below it will be happy.
1: Agents that haven't been in REO but have heard about it are concerned about the next issue, and that is sometimes you have to put up money out of your own personal pocket as the agent to prime the pump and get things going and then be reimbursed later. Are you having to put money up for these rehabs? Case by case, but yes.
0: And that is a strain. I know that if I had to do that four years ago when I started, I don't know how I would have been able to manage that. I don't have a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac account, but I've been told by some of my friends that do that they're also, in addition to any rehab that may be asked, they're asked to front the the cash for key money. And that can be pricey as well. And that's definitely one of the the downsides of doing this type of work. Today, I'm in a better position and I can handle that without being too stressed out about it. Just agents that get into this business need to know that it does seem that banks are looking for any opportunity to not have to pay for things. So you have to make sure you have a good understanding of what their reimbursement requirements are what they need to be submitted with your request for reimbursement, and that you are doing that and you're doing it as soon as you can. So as soon as the work's done and you have the invoice, you need to put it all together the way they want it and send it back to them. Just be good at accounting to make sure you get your money back. On each particular property, if
1: you were to try to budget out for the next year and you were going to take on 100 assignments, what would you try to think of in your mind as far as how much you would need per property as far as cash that you were gonna have to front for the bank?
0: Me personally, my accounts pay directly. I get my invoices in from whoever has done work. I submit it into their systems and ask for the contractor or the vendor to be paid directly. They've already supplied me with W-9s and they're all input into the system so that I don't have to worry about that. If someone didn't supply me with a W-9, I wouldn't work with them. But if for whatever reason I got crazy in my head and decided to work with someone that wouldn't provide me with a W-9, I would then have to pay for them. I would have to pay them and then submit for reimbursement myself and if I had to do that for all of these houses for 100, 100 homes in a year, on average, I would say that uh, a 1,200-square-foot home here is probably going to have about $5,000 to $7,500 spent on it in rehab. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And obviously, that's 100 properties spread over the years, so you would hope that you're being reimbursed, but you you really should probably have like. And if you had to do that, 50000 But on the bright side, I don't think that anyone is being requested to do that. I don't know that anyone has to cover all of the expenses. And the banks that don't pay the vendors directly tend to not do as extensive rehabs as my clients do. So that's also the benefit. Chances are that they're only going to want you to do, uh, let's say they just want you to do trash out and initial sales clean. Initial sales clean is probably 300 bucks. And the trash out varies, but let's just say it's uh three hundred bucks also, so maybe a thousand dollars for each one and then again, like I said, you know you're on a, a rotation there where you sell one, you get one, and when you sell it on the sale date of when it has a new owner, you've probably already submitted all your stuff for reimbursement, and hopefully would have already been paid back so again you've probably you're probably just talking like maybe twenty thousand dollars, which is a ton of money i mean, I wouldn't want to have to do that. And I'm glad that I don't. But that is the the risk and the sacrifice that you're going to have to prepare yourself for to get into the business, especially if the servicers and the banks that you're working for are asking that of you. Because the alternative is don't work for them and don't make any money in this type of business. And for me, when you've kind of assessed the whole situation, you have no choice. And that's a risk, a, a business risk and a potential cost that I think is one you have to take.
1: Have you worked it out so that you are not fronting the money on the rehab? Correct. So you have the banks paid direct. Did you have to arrange that specifically with them over time and initially you had to put up the money or, or did you just look for banks that did
0: not require you to put up money? I did not look for them. It's just I was fortunate in that sense. So the account that does most of the rehabs, they have always preferred to pay directly. It's a check and balance thing, I think, for them as well. They want to verify that who's doing the work is licensed, is in good standing with the state, and is doing a high quality of workmanship. And if I'm in between that, I would think that that would limit their ability to to check. And I think they want to independently be able to run people through whatever systems it is they're doing to make sure they're working with people they want to work with.
1: How about the cash for keys? Are you having to front the money on that, or are you also getting the banks to front the money?
0: The bank pays for that. I don't know what goes into into what they're looking for there, but they are running uh, Social Security numbers, and they're running uh, background checks, and they're running addresses and cross-referencing them with things within their own systems to make sure that they can move forward with a, a cash for key thing. I'm sorry, I don't know what it is they're looking for, but I have had where I've submitted the agreement signed by the occupant and their W 9s and sent it off and it be rejected by the system. I've never told why, which is probably better for me. Yeah, they definitely pay for that themselves. So on each of these properties,
1: are you being required to front any money for the bank and then get reimbursed later?
0: Yes. When I deal with HOAs, a lot of times they won't give any information until they're paid up front. That's probably about a $400 to $500 cost. Any emergency repairs that the home suffers that jeopardizes its integrity, I have to pay up front, and that can vary. I mean, a couple of weeks ago I was telling you several things that happened to a house, and I had to front all of that money. It ended up totaling a couple thousand dollars, and I have to submit for reimbursement, and um, you know, that's a little nerve-wracking because you don't even know if these repairs are going to be re- approved. And if they're not approved, you're not going to get reimbursed. So you do have to uh, rely on your your experience and your expertise and just, you know, just think it through when things happen and determine, uh, you know, is this an emergency and needs to be taken care of, which is your responsibility as the as the listing agent with the assignment, or is this something that can wait for me to submit for approval before I move forward? yeah I do have to pay for things um just as they come up it's it's not a it's not across the board because luckily bad things don't happen to every single house but there are certain things that need to be addressed right then and there, and there's no time to go through all the rigmarole what would
1: be a a couple quick examples of emergency repairs you'd have
0: to address immediately Got a house where the roof was discovered to be leaking and we thought it was just a simple fix, and when we got up there with the storm coming in, it ended up that someone had covered a fire-damaged roof with comp shingles, you know, a otherwise nice-looking roof, and I had to pay for that repair in order to secure the, uh, protect the house right off the bat. I had another house where someone came out and they stole some critical equipment of the pump, because it was in a rural setting, and without the water, the the pool equipment and the pool itself and the painting and the installation of the kitchen actually that was a big rehab none of that could go forward without the water and that was a repair that needed to be done because we have to stay on the timeframes of what the bank wants for all of this work like that's an example of something where when I just think of it logically the house needs water. It's a, it's a utility. You know, this one happened to be on a well and someone came and stole some stuff, but it needed to be remedied right away so that everything else stayed on track. A couple broken window things where people throw things through windows to, and break in or vagrants break in through windows. The board up is something I have to pay for up front to resecure the house and make sure people can't get in. That's pretty much it, though. It almost always involves the securing or protection of a property.
1: You have a lot of experience with cash for keys. Are there any tricks of the trade there?
0: You just have to be understanding. I mean, number one, you need to know that the people you're dealing with are going through probably a real tough time. Either they're the homeowner, the prior homeowner, and they probably don't feel too great about the bank, and they're in a tough situation or they're a tenant and they may not have even known you were coming. Both instances you have to be understanding, be empathetic to what they're dealing with. But on top of that, I always go out of my way to make sure that it's understood that I have been asked to come to a property to check on it on behalf of the bank, but I do not work for the bank. You know, I'm not an employee of the bank. I'm not an employee of whatever particular bank it is. I I work for Cobo Banker and we're completely separate and we're just the messenger. And we know it's a tough situation, but we are, you know, this is what the the bank is willing to offer. And then it always helps if you can help explain the process to the person so that they can take all of the information and make whatever decision is best for them. Normally, the best decision for them is to accept the cash for key offers because that's the only way that they will get any sort of help in moving. The other option, most of the time, is eviction. And that may get them more time in the house, uh, but there's no money at the end of that. And the eviction process here ends with a sheriff lockout, not the most enjoyable of experiences. I just try to help them understand what their options are, what the pros and cons of each thing is. The pro of the cash for key being obviously money to help them move. The con being you don't get to stay as long as you otherwise would. Versus the eviction being you get to stay a little bit longer, but there's no money because the bank takes the money that they were willing to give to you to help move, and they have to reallocate that to paying the the lawyers for the eviction. I mean there's no trick to it. normally, it's just you give people the information, don't try to be uh manipulative, you know it's it's not your personal house. I don't personally own it. I don't personally have an interest one way or the other. I just want them to be able to make a decision that's best for them and then present it in that way and normally get a good response.
1: Do most occupants accept the cash for keys, or do most of them go all the way through the eviction
0: process? Most accept the cash for keys. Right now, I think of the last 10 I've done, only one didn't. I don't know why he didn't. He ended up moving out within this time frame that was offered to him for cash for keys, but I'm not sure what the special circumstances were in in his life to not, not take it. When you're negotiating a contract
1: on one of these REO properties, you're receiving offers from buyer agents. What recommendations do you have to buyer agents to give them an upper hand, a better shot at getting a, a winning bid, a winning contract?
0: Well, I try to be as helpful as I possibly can because I know how tough it is in the market here, and I don't like the idea of people just spinning their wheels for no reason. So, when people call, I try to get, when agents call, I try to give them as much information as I can without jeopardizing my responsibility to the seller. Because uh, rule number one is never forget who you work for, and I work for the seller. I'm the listing agent. But that being said, I don't think I'm hurting anyone by telling them how many offers are in. I don't think I hurt anyone when I share if uh, the offers are at, below, or above asking price. Because if your client has a certain limitation on what they can offer, that kind of information helps you to know we should probably move on to something else instead of getting their hopes up for a property they have very little shot at getting. And if they get that information and they understand that, hey, there's a lot of offers and they're all over asking price and they still want to put an offer in, well, good for them, but at least they have that information up front and aren't being misled and are still choosing on their own to move forward with their offer. I have a little template, seller instructions that I put in for all of my properties and you know, there are certain things that the bank requires, like they they won't accept DocuSign, they want only wet signatures on it, they want a pre-approval letter that is from a, a reputable company, preferably from whatever particular bank it is that owns the house. Uh, I do have assigned loan officers from each bank, so I put their information in there so that the buyer's agents and their clients can contact them to get pre-approved if they want. I make it clear to them that although am strongly suggesting they get pre-approved with my assigned loan officer. They don't have to get their loan with that person. It's just a a double check of the, that the loan letter that they're providing to me is valid, that, um, their financed offer is good. And like I said, I share with them the, the number of offers that I have, and I give them a, an idea of above, below, or at range, but never specific price because I think that's in is unfair to all the other agents that have offers in. If you, you start telling specific prices, then that person can just go up by 100 or or $1,000, and that's definitely not fair to the other agents that I'm not on the phone with at any given time. It could cost uh, the seller money because who knows what they're willing to offer.
1: Agents who haven't worked with uh, the REO market would probably have another question. They probably heard a lot of different things, and that is, how do you get paid? Do you get paid a commission just like a regular sell? Yes. And are those commissions in line with the retail side, or do you think you're making more or less?
0: My biggest account, it's in line, and that biggest account is directly through a bank. They don't have a servicer that they hire. They have their broker network works directly for them. So with them, I get paid percent for me and percent for the buyer's agent, so total plus buyer's agents can get a bonus. For the servicers, they take a referral fee right off the top. So the listing agreements may come across looking traditional, but they're not necessarily because they're taking a, a 30 to 40% referral fee right off the top, and that results in obviously a, a reduced commission. And with those servicers, as the price of the home goes up, the commission structure actually does change a little bit. So if you're selling a house like the eight hundred thousand dollar range, they adjust your commission lower.
1: And are the banks then setting both the commission for you as well as the co op agent or the buyer's agent? Yes. Let's get back to this concept of team or in your case the lack of it. You've you've decided to go at your own. Why did you make that decision to not have any team members to help
0: you and support you with this endeavor? One of the experiences I had was I gained an account because an agent who does a lot of business lost an account as a result of him having runners that would check on properties and take BPO photos for him for exterior BPOs. And exterior BPOs tend to be the ones that are done before the foreclosure sale. And what had happened was this runner didn't actually look at the house. I don't know where they pulled their photos from, but the house had burnt down and it completed the BPO stating that the house was in average condition. Yeah, and the banks, I don't know if they do this anymore, and I don't know if maybe it's uh, specific to each bank, but this particular bank used our exterior BPOs to help set the opening bid price. At the foreclosure auctions at the county courthouse and so they were given drastically wrong valuation numbers so they asked way too much money for the opening bid and got stuck with a burnt lot obviously i mean the consequence of that were severe the asset manager wanted to know what the deal was i mean we're instructed that we're supposed to be doing these ourselves again i don't know if that's across the board with every bank but for this particular one it is our responsibility to be doing these ourselves we're not to put, i mean it's okay to have someone submitting a utility bill for you but you're supposed to be the one issuing the bpo price because you're the expert you're the one it's your mind that the bank has hired you're the one that said i've been doing this for x amount of years and i'm familiar with these areas and i you know yada 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 down the line is your resume that they looked at and approved, it's your expertise that they're looking for, not some runner, not someone that they don't know who probably has limited to no real estate experience and someone that obviously isn't reliable because they just said the house was fine when it was not even there. And that experience for me, where I benefited from, scared me. And I vowed that I would never, ever lose an account because of something someone else did or didn't do, especially... If just for me and my personal feeling on the matter was, if I can do it myself, I should do it myself. And for all the other reasons I just said, I mean, it's asked of me to do it myself by the bank and it's me that's on those resumes and those applications. I just, I feel like I have a responsibility to do it myself and I don't want to lose business from laziness. You've chosen
1: this path to do all this business yourself, and yet you've been able to do an amazing amount of business for someone working by themselves. I asked you earlier how you did that. You mentioned systems. What kind of systems have you put in place?
0: Just templates for each thing, trying to answer questions, like, for instance, dealing with occupants. I put together a cover letter that helps to explain the questions that I tend to receive so that they have the answers up front without having to have a conversation with me that would take even longer than me just having to write that letter that one time. Having templates for my REO bid sheets. I know that for the majority of the houses I'm going to have to put a bid sheet together. I know that my experience has demonstrated certain elements are always going to need to be addressed. So I have the bid sheet and the wording of what is required for each item already in there so that I can just change the address and send it out when the the new properties come up. Having a system in place for taking the pictures so that when I go to a house, the system's already there and you just go and you act out that method of doing it and you just get faster and better at it. The other key too, in addition to systems, is just working. I mean, working an eight-hour day or maybe even a 10-hour day in real estate, but working that whole time, not chit-chatting in the break room or going out to lunch with a bunch of buddies in the office and killing an hour and a half to two hours and, you know, twiddling your thumbs for a little bit. But if you're legitimately working through that whole time, there's enough time to get the majority of the work done. It sounds like a lot of work, and it is a lot of work, but I think that if you are applying yourself to that work for that dedicated period of time, you know, 8 a.m. to 5 or whatever your hours is, you can get it done. Do you use a lot of checklists? I have checklists, but I don't necessarily use them. I I think I wrote them up because it helps my mind remember the things I need to do. And I have them if I ever do need them to check and verify what it is or is required of me. But I don't necessarily use them all the time. But I do have them. I, I did write them up and, you know, somewhere for the rehab process and I would send them to the contractors when I was trying to help them to get into the habit of doing things in the time frame that the bank wanted i broke down what the bank wanted and uh, so i have a checklist for that i had a checklist for when when i get the property you know turn the utilities on secure the house uh, take the pictures send the bid you know i had all that broken down as well just now i don't necessarily use it as often as i as i did in the past
1: do you use any type of software program to help track everything that's happening with each of these
0: homes no I use what the banks require me to use. One account I use, their system is called Aspen, and it's online. HMSI has a system called Dares. Again, that's online, and I use that. And you're required to use it, it's not a choice. And the systems themselves help keep you on on task. It lets you know what it is you have to do right now, and then once you complete that, it does trigger new tasks for you to complete. And it gives you timeframes for that. This is due in one day, two days, five days, seven days. So the systems that they are giving as requirements to use help, but I do not have any additional systems that I use on top of those.
1: You've mentioned this time issue. How many hours are you working
0: in a week? I love what I do. I love the REO business. I love how dynamic it is. So I, like it's work, but it's not tiring for me. It doesn't register as being this. I like doing it. And I would say I work probably six days every week. And I'm probably working about 10 hours every day.
1: think you're working about 60 hours
0: a week? Yeah. Spread that over seven days. I work real early in the morning like today. I called you at nine, but I'd been up since six. And I've been working since seven. You know, and then at night I work as well. Like last night I was working until... I think I didn't stop working until about 10.30. It averages out some days are a little bit slower than others as you get things done on one day and, and then there's nothing to do the next day. So you recharge your batteries as the week goes through.
1: Did you say you tried to take off one day a week? Yeah. Which day do you take off? Sunday. And that time you spend with your family?
0: Yep. And parts of Saturday as well. I I mean, I always I'm the earliest one to wake up in the family and we have a home office. And that helps me immensely. So I'm able to get a lot of work done while everyone else is still asleep. Um, by the time everyone else wakes up, I've probably been up for a minimum of two hours, but sometimes three or four.
1: What system do you use to schedule your time or control your time? You have a time management system?
0: I just use my iPhone. Uh, I put scheduled appointments and whatnot in there. It like integrates itself into my Outlook, which is awesome. And vice versa, Outlook actually integrates itself back into my iPhone. I did not do anything specific to make it do that. It's just what it does, and um, that's a huge help for me.
1: Do you try to use any type of time blocking? Do you do certain tasks at certain hours of the day each day?
0: I try to do my offers, uh, any offers that I need to submit to the bank for consideration on a property. I try to do those early in the morning so that I can stay focused on that. And I'm talking, you know, before the sun comes up, like so about 6 a.m. Because no one's calling and there's no distractions. Once the business day begins, you're going to get a lot of phone calls from agents and buyers off of signs and off the Internet. And and then different clients are going to be calling in. So I try to save the work for that period of time that is not as time-consuming, where like each small task or job doesn't take as much time as something like Offer submission and review can take. I check on my houses a minimum of once a week. That's something I try to do early in the morning as well. It's safer to do that. Some of the neighborhoods aren't as nice as others, and some of the rougher types of individuals don't seem to get up early in the morning. I'd rather catch them asleep and ask them to leave than get there and they're awake and they're asking me to leave. You mentioned you get buyer
1: leads coming off sign calls. What do you do with those buyer leads? Sometimes refer them
0: out, and sometimes I keep them. only thing that depends on is how much work I have to do. I always try to answer any question they have, regardless if they're my client or not, when they call, so that they can decide if they want to move forward or not. I have information that they send them a lot of times I'll refer them to whoever my assigned loan officer is for that particular property if it's bank owned. So if it's a Wells Fargo property, I will send them to my assigned Wells Fargo guy. I'll CC him on the email that I send to the client and I'll CC myself so I can save it to follow up if I need to later on. And I kind of let the loan officers take it from there and decide if they're qualified or not. But I try not to represent too many buyers because every client deserves your full attention and the way the market is right now here for us with such a limited inventory it's a lot of work to get a buyer into contract and you need to be able to be there for them as fast as they need you to be and so you can't handle that many buyers here right now at any given time and do the type of work that i'm doing you know my bread and butter work and handle a lot of buyers. So that restricts me on what I can do with those leads other than refer them out or send them to the loan officers for pre-approval, you know, in order to buy me some time, you know, a few days or whatever.
1: When you refer these buyer leads out, are you asking for a referral fee from that agent?
0: Sometimes, and it's just a flat 25%. And it's normally uh, you know, it's only actually just for that. I, some of, I know in the past, some of the clients that I've referred out have been people that bought multiple properties after that, and I don't get referral fees from that. You know, I should probably be more <laughs> on top of that. But at the same time, you know, I didn't have the time to do it, what they needed me to do, and this agent did. And I think that's a great bonus for them. You know, I don't necessarily want to take anything from them when they're working their butt off to get things done for their business as well. Now you've mentioned answer the phone multiple
1: times. Is it important for you to answer the phone each time it rings?
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely. And if you don't answer your phone, I really think it gives people the wrong first impression. And you can't answer the phone all the time. Sometimes you're already on the phone when someone's calling, but you should try to call them back as soon as you can because that's I actually don't know this from me answering the phone and getting good responses it's more prevalent that you hear about other agents that don't answer their phone and hearing what people have to say about that I do get people agents and and buyers when I answer the phone and say oh I'm so glad you answered or thank you for answering after the conversation saying thank you for answering. Which in itself is a demonstration of how important it is to them that you are answering the phone when they call. So yes, I think that's very important. I think an agent
1: who has not had any experience with REO would look at your business model and try to decide if it was for them. They'd recognize that you're doing a lot of running around, but you don't have a a staff which which certainly helps. And they're they're probably wondering in their mind, is your
0: operation profitable? Well yeah. I don't have the stress or the Overhead to pay anybody else. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in this type of market and be responsible not only for my own well-being, my son and my wife, but also for the well-being of employees. That's just one more reason for me to want to do this by myself. And I look at the numbers of other agents that do have teams, and when I know they have licensed agents on their teams, to me, I think, well, you should be doing however many other agents and, and assistants you have. Your business should be multiplied by that number. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. To me.
1: And that's what people do. They look at these different business models when they're at the beginning trying to plan out. Something that usually helps is to look at different business models and try to get a handle on what is a reasonable profit margin for each model. For instance, you're running by yourself, so we assume you've got a higher percentage of your revenue that's hitting the bottom line as opposed to one of these large teams. Would you mind sharing with us either what percentage hits the bottom line? or
0: a goal that you're trying to achieve? Well, my expenses, I mean, my expenses are just going to be the cost of, of my marketing materials that I put at a house, which for any house, let's just say that's 50 bucks worth of flyers. 50 bucks worth of flyers is going to be about 100 to 150 flyers. And then my virtual tour, but that's not specific on each property. That's per month. And that's, I think, 30 bucks a month. So thirty bucks a month for every house, and then you know fifty bucks for every closed transaction. My expenses for these is is not that high. It's, it's the expenses in in the time commitment. And that being said, like I said, when you work when you actually work during the hours that you've committed to work, it doesn't interfere with my private life. So, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how much it takes my bottom line, but a lot seventy percent, seventy five, eighty. I'm just being conservative, actually. I think it might be even higher from what you've stated. It's me going out and taking the pictures. I'm not paying someone to do that. I'm not paying a runner to go check on occupancy. It's me doing that. So I guess there's gas. There's gas. But again, none of that is that big of an expense for me. It's nowhere near what it would be if I had to pay other people to do stuff.
1: Would you think it'd be reasonable to say that your profit margin may be as high as 90%? Yes. Of $100 that comes in only $10 Ten dollars going out in the expenses and the rest is going to you? Yes. That's fantastic.
0: For agents that are considering this business or doing this, it's not rocket science. The most important thing is just persistent drive and willingness to work. To educate yourself and persistently drive towards your goal. That's it. That is it. Education will help make you smarter and your persistent drive will put you in the position to get the the reward from your intelligence. Education.
1: How have you educated yourself on this business? You mentioned in, in the early days you talked to agents that were already doing it. Since then, have you been reading books or taking classes, or how have you educated yourself? Do you go to conferences? I've gone to a handful of
0: conferences, maybe one a year now. Before, I used to go to maybe three a year. I don't necessarily go to conferences that are specific to REO business because I feel it's important to get a good understanding of real estate on a bigger picture to understand what's going on outside of your little bubble and so that you can anticipate things coming from outside of that bubble into your little world. Read lots of books. There's several websites that I don't know what the websites are because through my Facebook feed and through my email, they send me the articles but i read them i wish i could remember what what those are there's some message boards actually that are great and again i just have the links and i click on them i can't think of what they are but there's one that was a real it's a real helpful message board man i wish i could remember what it was for you now but i just i just click on the links and i go to it and it I was very surprised when I found it. But if people do a a search for message boards, the best thing about those message boards for keeping you educated is is that the posts are made by other agents in different parts of the country, but still they're sharing their experiences of what works and doesn't work and different companies that are popping up or maybe going away or changing their regions, and that can help to get you in the right direction to get more business. But yeah, reading is, is critical, and then just doing it is a great educator. But I also have designations. I, have, I, I take the time to um, take the NAR courses or different uh, distressed property uh, courses in order to get the designations to help better educate myself on what other agents are doing or what the industry as a whole is expecting. There's different designations, but they all help.
1: Do you think it's too late for a new agent to get into the REO game?
0: No, it's never too late, ever. Some of the worst advice I was ever given was by an agent who was producing well at the time, and he told me that if you're not making $100,000, you have no business being in real estate, and you should quit. And I was probably making $40,000 when he told me this. And that was the worst bit of advice I'd ever had, and I made it my goal to do better than him. And I remember I went into my broker, and I told him. I didn't tell him that story, but I told him, I was like, you know what, I think next year... I'm going to work my butt off to be uh, number 29 in the company because if I can do that then I'll beat this guy over here and he laughed at me and the following year I think I was number 5 in the company. It's never too late to get in because what I was telling you before is today that broker network may be perfect and everyone's happy and there's no opportunities but people retire, people change, people move. Sometimes things happen like that burned down house story I told you, you know, things happen. And that wasn't even my HUD account. You know, I have different stories for different accounts that I've gotten, but they're all very similar, you know, this deep into this market that someone dropped the ball and you need to be there to pick it up. And that could be any day.
1: Why do you think you've been so successful?
0: I just want to do well. I think it's important to do the right thing not because of some reward for doing the right thing or out of fear of doing the wrong thing and being punished, but because it's the right thing to do. I like what I do. I think that I do a really good job of helping people through tough situations when I'm dealing with the occupants, and I think I do a really good job of trying to get the absolute most money out of a house that's been foreclosed on for the bank that in turn helps the neighbors around it minimize the damage of a current marketplace to their home values. I love this type of business for those reasons. I'm not scared of hard work and I don't, I don't know, I, just some sort of a drive to want
1: to do it. You wrote down something on your document that you gave to us that said, you have a persistent drive fueled by paranoia. What are you scared of? What's the paranoia part?
0: Well, the paranoia part comes from the stark contrast between successful agents right now in in Sacramento to the struggling ones. It's not a gradual decline. There's a big drop-off between the two, and I'm very fortunate to be successful over these last several years through my hard work, and I've had multiple examples of how someone else making a mistake and, and me getting the benefit because I didn't do whatever it is that they happen to do, and benefiting from that. So the paranoia comes from making sure that I don't become like one of those people where I get maybe complacent and comfortable, and as a result, make a mistake. I allow that paranoia to be a positive and to further drive me to do well.
1: If you were to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first?
0: First thing to do is I would call expired calls. I would go through the MLS and look up expired listings and call on them, regardless if they were short sales or or whatever the situation happens to be. Start getting the experience of interacting with sellers. Believe it or not, I would actually say hold open houses every weekend to put you in contact with buyers and just establish yourself as a professional in, in the marketplace and in real estate. And I would start going to mixers. I would interact with other agents at any sort of mixer event that's put on in your area. And I would interact with the loan officers and other elements of the real estate industry that go to those. just just, you know, introduce yourself again, establish yourself as a professional in, in the marketplace and see what job opportunities perhaps could come from that. Like a termite guy, you know, may not think, Anything special about it? But maybe uh, on the side, he's uh, rehabbing houses and needs an agent to sell them for him, or, or needs an agent to help him identify fixers to fix. You know, maybe a, a loan officer you can pair with, or a loan officer can put you is not happy with whoever uh, they have assigned to their REO account and is looking for someone new. You know, who knows what the opportunities could be? But definitely got to get out there and interact with both the public and uh, other industry professionals for a new agent.
1: Well, Mark, that's excellent advice. You prove that you don't need a team to sell a lot of properties. Your drive and determination combined with your organizational skills and systems allows you to operate your business profitably and efficiently. You really are full-time, hands-on, and accountable. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate brand who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward.
0: You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent, Interview of the Month Club where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America
1: reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal
0: interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.